listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to this Legal Talk Network special report. This is Bob Ambrogi. I'm the co-host of Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network, and we're broadcasting, sort of, podcasting today from the Clio Cloud Conference in Chicago. We're uh, here on the floor at the conference, and I'm here with uh, Cindy Cohn. Cindy is the legal director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, as well as its general counsel. She's responsible for overseeing the EFF's overall legal strategy and supervising EFF's 14 staff attorneys. The National Law Journal named Cindy Cohn one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America in 2013, noting if Big Brother is watching, he better look out for Cindy Cohn. Welcome to our podcast here, Cindy. Thank you. And Cindy, you just gave, uh, I don't know, a a frightening uh, keynote (laughs) about NSA spying in the United States. And I I know we don't have anywhere near enough time to go through everything, but I wonder if you could just kind of give us the the short version of, of just how pervasive this really is right now. Well, the fundamental thing that shifted in the way the government thinks about our communications is um, they, they shifted um, shortly after September 11th, although this was something they wanted to do before then, from a situation in which they needed to have targeted and specific information before they could investigate you to one where they collect everything that everyone is doing domestically and internationally first analyze it and sort through second what they actually need. And and my thesis is that this turns the Fourth Amendment on its head. Um, And it turns our basic relationship with the government on its head, where uh, we are not, we, we can never be assured that we're having a private conversation. We can never be assured that the government isn't listening in. And I think this has profound implications for a democracy. I'm not sure people understand the extent to which this, to which our data is being collected. And could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, there, it's difficult because it's being collected in a much of different ways. And one of the revelations of the past year is that the government is doing kind of all of the above when it comes to surveillance. So uh, we know that the government is collecting all communications uh, that pass through key domestic uh, backbone choke points. So the way your communications travel over the internet, they go through these key junctures, like when your communication, if you're on AT&T, gets transferred over to uh, the general internet or over to Verizon. If you're talking to somebody who's on Verizon, you're emailing with somebody. At those key junctures, uh, which are called the internet backbone junctures, uh, the government is basically making a copy of all the communications that travel through those junctures. One copy goes to its destination and the other copy goes into the government control. Um, this, you know, these junctures carry your email, they carry your instant messages, they carry your Skype calls and your hangout calls, they carry a lot of your regular phone calls because a lot of telephone networking now on the back end uh, isn't carried on the phone networks, it's carried over the internet. Uh, and that's perfectly legitimate, it's a lot cheaper for the company, but it, it means that a lot of, of everybody's communications, whether it's a web search or a phone call, travels over these junctures and a copy gets sent to the government. 
So you indicated that there are Fourth Amendment implications for this. Explain that. How is the Fourth Amendment implicated? Well, I think the Fourth Amendment's implicated at two places in, in this. Uh, the first is the seizure. It's a search and seizure is the, the Fourth Amendment doctrine. The first is the initial seizure, this collect-it-all mentality. I think this is a Fourth Amendment uh, event. Um, seizure law isn't as well-developed as search law in this country, but it's always been a part of the doctrine. And I think that, that the initial collection is a seizure. Uh, we know with regard to the backbone collection, which the government also calls upstream sometimes, that this uh, collection then is filtered a little bit to try to get out of, get rid of some of the, the, the domestic traffic. But then the content and the non-content is searched for keywords or algorithms or whatever it is the government's looking at. Um, and I think that's a search. It's a search of content for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. So I think it's, it's implicated both in the seizure and in the search. What about, you also raised the uh, First Amendment concerns here. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that the First Amendment is especially important when you think about some of the government's other collection programs, like the telephone records collection program, where they're collecting all your phone data. Um, they aren't getting the content of your communications through that program. As I said, they're overlapping programs. But they are getting who you call, how often you call them, how long you talk to them, uh, who calls you. Uh, the, the information that would be on your phone bill, if you still got one, most of us don't anymore, and plus additional information. And I think that the First Amendment comes in here because this reveals the web of your associations. This, this reveals who you talk to, who you associate with. That's why the government wants it. They're making maps of who associates with who that they use to try to stop terrorism, but that they also can use for other purposes. And the, this mapping, I think, implicates the First Amendment. Um, and it's especially easy to see in the context of organizations that are working for political change. Uh, so we put together a case called First Unitarian Church of Los Angeles versus NSA, which involves the church, of course, um, but also organizations like Students for Sensible Drug Policy and the California Gun Owners Association and People for the American Way who run hotlines and other means of communication with the general public where uh, they've seen a drop-off in people wanting to talk to them about sensitive issues as a result of realizing that the NSA is getting access to this information. So it's the right of association that's implicated here? It's the First Amendment right of association, and the NAACP versus Alabama case from the 1950s established that if the government wants to track people's associations, it needs to meet strict scrutiny under the First Amendment, which requires narrow tailoring and very careful uh, mapping between ends and means, which collecting everybody's telephone records is obviously massively overbroad for the tiny, tiny fraction of those that might be responsive to a terrorism inquiry. So one of the things that you addressed is the government's argument with regard to phone records, that it's it's really just getting phone records and it's getting the telephony metadata, and it's not getting the substance of the phone calls. It's not literally listening to our phone calls. So, so why is that? Why do we care about that? Why is that a bad thing? Well, I think that the idea that that can't reveal anything sensitive about you is, frankly, it doesn't pass the giggle test. I mean, if the government knows who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, how often you're talking to them, then they know an awful lot about you. In fact, they probably know more than they might get if they just listen to the content content of your messages, you know, which might be, hey, I'm here, can you come get me, right? But the fact that you called, you know, your husband or your drug dealer uh, and you do that regularly, uh, you know, would tell them an awful lot more about your communications than the content of the communication. So 
to the extent that metadata is being used here as a rough proxy for whether something can reveal intimate information about you, it absolutely can. And the more metadata the government has and the sophisticated tools it has to analyze that data uh, can allow them to create a very intimate portrait of your life. And, and one of the, the quotes that, uh, that came from, I believe it's General Alexander, is, you know, we kill people based on metadata, right? Uh, so it really, I don't know, ever worked as a proxy for what was sensitive about you, but it certainly doesn't work in the current environment. That's not how the government's using it. Um, and I think that this, it's, this distinction doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. So we're here at a conference that focuses on cloud computing and the legal profession. So I, I mean, the inevitable question is, is what about, what implications does this have for lawyers who are using cloud computing, who are communicating with clients versus via email? Should they be running scared from the cloud? Well, I don't know that they should be running scared from the cloud, but I think that they need to think seriously about the security of their communications. You know, this this metaphor of the cloud is really misleading, right? Because it you think of a you know a kind of a, a place where you know there isn't anybody else watching, that it's not vulnerable, and that it's kind of private. Uh, you know, your own private cloud. Um, but I, I really uh, I joke sometimes that I actually think the right metaphor ought to be safes in the sky rather than clouds uh, in the sky, um, because that's what we. We need. We need secure storage. We need a secure way to communicate. It was interesting because you, you said, you know, should lawyers who communicate with their clients via email be worried? And I think the answer to that is all lawyers that I know of communicate with their clients via email. So that means all lawyers a need to, yeah, the, the, the edge case is notwithstanding. Uh, and even if they don't communicate, their staff does. Uh, so, you know, just because you're somebody who's managed to insulate yourself from email doesn't mean that email doesn't happen with your clients. It just may not be you. Um, I think that, that lawyers do need to be concerned about this. They need to step up and be a constituency that demands real security and that they demand it of their vendors and they demand it of their government. And, and one of my, my pitches today to this audience was, you know, the, this conversation has been started now. Um, it's a big conversation. The majority of Americans think now that the, uh, the majority, more Americans think that the NSA has gone too far then think that it has not now. It's the first time since I've been working on these issues since 2006 that we've had that kind of penetration. Um, and I think the lawyers need to step up both as a, as a technical matter to demand security, but also as a policy matter and demand security. The attorney-client privilege isn't this side thing, right? People who practice understand that it's central to establishing a relationship with your client where your client's going to tell you the things that you need to know and able to, to be able to really defend them or to prosecute their case properly. And if that trust is gone, your ability to do your job well is going to go away. So I would like to see the, the legal audience step forward, whether it's through bar associations, whether it's through their individual advocacy, whether it's through their access to their local and state and federal elected officials. Lawyers are a powerful lobby in this country, especially, I think, you know, smaller lawyers, not the big firms, need to join in and say, look, we, this, is, this situation is not tolerable and we need to fix it. You actually suggested during your talk that the, the, that the bar, I think you used the word tepid, has been, the, the, at least the organized bar has been tepid in its response to this. I don't, I, I, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners 
know all about the EFF. Maybe you can give us a two-second of what the EFF is and what it's doing about this issue. Sure. The Electronic Frontier Foundation is a small nonprofit. We're based in San Francisco. Uh, we have 15 lawyers uh, and about 60 staffers in total. Um, and we are working kind of uh, across the board to try to uh, make sure that people's constitutional and legal rights make it intact into the digital age. So obviously we're deeply concerned about the NSA spying. We are mainly litigators, so we have uh, three pending cases where we're challenging the telephone records and the upstream collection of communications uh, through the legal process. I think fundamentally these are constitutional issues, and so the courts are the right place to get the fixes we need. We also work in Congress a bit. Um, we're not a hard lobbying shop, but we certainly uh, give our support to others who are working in Congress. And we work to educate the public, especially the geeky public, uh, uh, to about these issues and to get them fired up. I'd like to add to that the lawyers as well, because I think lawyers understand the need for privacy and security of their communications at a level that a lot of ordinary people might not. Um, you know, people in industry understand the need for trade secrets, uh, protecting their, their business and proprietary secrets. Lawyers understand the privilege. There's different audiences that have different understandings of, um, the, you know, how they see the privacy uh, needs. But lawyers are an important one. Um, so our job is to try to get people fired up and, and get them to, to take action. You know, the only way we're going to fix this is a national security state has been in secret driving the bus now for 15 years. So if we're going to reverse that course, it's going to take everybody participating uh, based on where they think they can best move the levers of power. I, I don't claim to, I don't necessarily know the best way that every lawyer can get involved. Obviously, joining EFF is important. We have about 30,000 members. Um, when I go to Congress or I stand up in front of a judge, I can confidently say I represent the interest of these 30,000 people, but that's too small. Right, we need more, uh, and and we need to build a movement um, that's not just EFF, but a bunch of organizations and a bunch of individuals who are going to stand up and say, you know, we're this is not okay. We we need to to reestablish basic privacy. Uh, we need to have a world in which it's possible to have a private conversation again. It, and I think you, if you didn't mention this already, I know you talked a lot about the importance of lawyers understanding to use encryption and understanding technology and security and you know, all of that. I mean, what do you recommend in that regard for lawyers? Well, I, I do think that as much as uh, it, it's um, a bit of a pain, it's actually cooler and easier than you think to take charge of your own security. Um, encryption is your friend. Uh, while we know that the government has been attacking a lot of the encryption protocols, some of the good news of what's coming out so far is that they can't actually break the math. The math still works. Uh, we need to get the implementations of, of the math uh, better. Cryptography at the bottom of it, encryption is a bunch of sophisticated math. But the math still holds, and it's a matter of finding and developing and supporting the tools that will give you a secure infrastructure. Lawyers for too long have bought have been interested in buying the technologies that might have been the cheapest or the easiest or that they were marketed to, they start. They need to start asking serious questions about how the cryptography works. And it's not just that there is cryptography. It's who's investigated this? Is it open source? Is it available? Can we see how this works? Secret encryption isn't secure encryption. The only way we know whether something's secure is if a whole bunch of people have beat on it and they can't break it. Um, that's what we know. So that's what security means to real security professionals. So if somebody tells you, don't worry, I've got a secret sauce and nobody can ever break it, 
anybody can create a secure encryption program that they themselves cannot break. But that's not good enough. We need something that, you know, is, is more secure than that. And so you got to ask hard questions. you got to make them give you the products you need. The technology exists. It just needs to be easier for mere mortals to use. Yeah. Well, let me give you the final word. Is there, is there anything else on NSA that we haven't talked about that you want to emphasize to our audience? No, I just think that um, well, the main thing I would like to emphasize is that I think it, it can be easy to give into this and just take a you know privacy nihilism, right? You know, there's nothing I can do. It's all rigged. There's no no steps I can take. I might as well just give it up and and, and do that. And I I guess I would encourage people not to feel that way. Um, you know, we have undertaken as a society much bigger and deeper problems than NSA overreach. We have we have changed our society for the better in the past. We just need to recognize that this is one of those moments where, you know, we have to decide, do we want to fight for the right to have a private conversation in this country? Um, if we want to fight for that right, all the tools are in place for us to regain those things. Uh, but we need to be willing to take it and we need to be willing to step in for the long run. Um, but I think it's it's certainly easier than other social issues that we've taken on as, as a country together. It was four years between the Watergate break-in and the passage of the original FISA law. Um, we're one year in after the Snowden revelation, so we've got three years to go before we're even at the place where we made the last big change, the last time we caught the U.S. government spying on the American people. Um, but it's going to take that kind of an effort. EFF is in it for the long haul. We were in this, we've been raising these issues since 2006. We're not going away. We just need more people to join us now. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. We've been talking with Cindy Cohn, the legal director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation here at the Clio Cloud Conference in Chicago. This is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, that wraps up today's special report. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.